As the famous story goes, after an enduring dispute, a husband and wife go in to see a civil judge. The wife opens, it isn't right. He's staying late at the office. I'm literally doing all the housework, raising all four kids, cooking the meals. He's just not pulling his weight. I need more support. Okay, you're right, the judge says. Says the husband, not so fast. I'm working on bringing in two brand new clients and big picture, we need the money. College for the kids, we each serve on two boards and it's really time for a new minivan. Plus, when I am home, I do all the dishes. Okay, you're right, the judge says. Wait, wait, the lawyer chimes in. They can't both be right. The judge pauses and says, you know, you're right. That's a bit like the ongoing conversation underway from both left and right when it comes to poverty, workforce participation, public policy, economics, and family structure. There are two sides of the coin, one institutional and public collective, the other personal and responsibility oriented. If you're familiar with this larger discussion, you'll no doubt recall that in March of 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan published a famous 78-page report entitled The Negro Family, A Case for National Action. At the time, a surge in out-of-wedlock childbearing had risen to 24% of all African-American births in the United States. Nearly one in four black children were being born out of wedlock, and Senator Moynihan saw trouble on the horizon. The black male unemployment rate was 29%. Moynihan perceived a looming crisis that he wanted the state to act on. Today, of course, the number of U.S. children born out of wedlock is far, far higher. 71% of all black children, 67% of Native American children, 53% of Hispanic children, and 31% of white children. Despite many anti-poverty innovations, including welfare-to-work-oriented innovations, America's poverty rate has more or less held constant. Of course, as today's guest, Oren Cast points out in his landmark new book, The Once and Future Worker, consumption by low-income individuals has increased, and some aspects of engagement in our national economy have improved. On the other hand, as Mona Charon points out, echoing Nick Eberstadt, we really do have a work problem. Today, over 7 million men between the ages of 25 and 55, the prime working years of life, are not only jobless, they're not looking for work. Today's two guests are not only scholars, but each at the top of their game. Mona Charon is a nationally syndicated columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics of Public Policy Center, where much of her work focuses on problems like father absence and the decline of marriage and the last half century's massive spike in single parent households. Her latest book is Sex Matters, about the feminist movement and its consequences in contemporary family life. Our second guest is Oren Cass, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of a new book that takes a fascinating look at economics, work patterns, education, and to some extent, the roles of civil society versus federal policy in achieving outcomes that help create a more flourishing workforce. Oren takes a new look at how we measure poverty in America and at the economic policy levers and public incentives that could perhaps help pull forward a large contingent of unworking Americans, including non-college educated Americans, who are easily overlooked by policymakers. And as you'll quickly hear, Mona and Oren are thinking about poverty, work, and family structure from different angles. It's a fascinating discussion, and at times it feels a little like an energetic courtroom, or maybe better still, like an impassioned family dinner table. Enjoy the conversation. 
Well, today on the podcast, we're bending the rules just a bit in that we have two scholars. We typically have a journalist and a scholar, but today we have the privilege of, of hosting Warren Cass, a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, and Mona Charon, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And you've probably seen both of their work in writing on a number of pages in the major national newspapers. So I think in some sense, we've got journalists in the mix as well. Oren, you say in your book that deals with the economic populism argument in a way that maybe a lot of people on the, on the right hadn't dealt with and leaned into in a sense. You say that happiness is uniquely tied to work and that compared with other major life events, whether that's a divorce or a death of a child or an illness or some other major change, you never quite recover in the same way from long-term unemployment or from unemployment. Could you unpack what you mean by that in the context of the thesis of your book? Yeah, sure. I think the thing that we need to focus on with public policy generally, and as you said, when we're thinking about economic policy, is what are we actually trying to achieve? And the model we've embraced for a very long time, and, and the model that most of economics runs on, is this idea of consumer welfare, that we are all consumers, and essentially the more stuff we can consume, the better off we are. And I think there's something to that. Certainly, you know, rising material living standards are incredibly important and something we should pursue. But we have to recognize that that's not what life is all about, that actually people's roles as producers, as productive contributors to their communities, as supporters of their families, matters at least as much, and, and I would argue a lot more, than how much they're consuming. And so the example you just gave is, is I think, a really interesting one from the social science literature, which is that you know happiness studies can get a little squishy but very good ones look at the same person over time because then you have a baseline. If you actually ask people over long periods of time how they're feeling about their lives, you can learn something. And what we've learned is that two interesting things. One, people sort of have their own baseline level of happiness. Some of us are naturally happier than others, and that's just kind of the way it is. And as you said, through all of these different life experiences, births, deaths, marriages, divorces, even permanent disabilities, you get temporary blips up and down in how people are feeling, but they tend to kind of revert back to their their normal level. And the one exception we know of is unemployment, that people who are accustomed to working and then find themselves without work move to a permanently lower level of satisfaction. And so that's not dispositive, but I, I think it's a good illustration of how important work and how important actually being engaged in production is to a good life. May I jump in, please, Josh? Please, That's interesting. And by the way, before I launch into a response to that, let me just say that I loved your little pun when you called, you were speaking about the economic pie and how, you know, this has been the traditional metaphor that's been used now since the 1950s about our economy. And, and you call this economic piety, which I piety. thought was uh, <laughs> excellent. Yes, major, major points for that one. Let's talk, though, about happiness. Would I be wrong in saying that those data on job loss leading to long-term depression apply much more to men than to women? My understanding is that that is the case, that it is much more devastating for men to be unemployed than for women. Yes, I think that's right. And, and that holds, as you just alluded to, there are a lot of other measures of, for instance, mental health and depression and so forth with unemployment. And also the family formation issues are tied primarily to men. So it's when men are unemployed that divorce likelihood goes way up. It's when men are unemployed that 
marriage is less likely to happen in the first place. Right. So it strikes me reading your work that you and I are focused on something of the same problem, but that your analysis of what needs to change is a little different from mine. So your analysis suggests because work is so key to self-esteem and to leading a good life and to participating in society in a meaningful way, that we need to do, we need to change a number of things in our economy and in our government and so forth to encourage work and make it easier for people to work. I look at the data, say, well, maybe that's the right approach. On the other hand, if you look at people who are religious, say, and are regular churchgoers, they don't have the same trouble finding jobs. They tend to have much higher rates of employment. Or if you look at men with a high school diploma who are married, their participation in the labor force is much higher than even single men with some college. And so what it seems to me is that the focus on work is important, but is it really the first thing? I think the first thing is really, and this gets into the differences between men and women and what the effect of feminism and the decline of families has meant over the last several decades, but men have lost to some degree their sense of their place in the family and in society. And without that, without that sense of I need to be a productive, contributing member of society because my wife depends on me and my children depend on me, without that, jiggering around with other aspects of, you know, encouraging work and subsidies and so forth is probably not going to get to the heart of the problem. Well, so I should say I mostly agree with what you just said. I think the religion dimension is an incredibly important one. I think the cultural side of, of how we understand marriage and family is incredibly important. That being said, I also think we have to understand which levers we actually have access to as policymakers. And so while I would support any effort that seemed to have a chance of, of success at addressing those other dimensions, one of the nice things about work is that because it comes out of the labor market, because it's something that economic policy actually has a large influence on, I think it's something that policymakers should be especially attentive to. So, so I think that's one reason for my emphasis on work. A second is I think that work actually, and I think you just described it, it well in a sense in sort of how men feel about their role in society and families those things are tied to work. And we know that work, for instance, actually does have a causal effect on marriage, or at least the best evidence suggests that it does. I'm not so sure that's right. The data that Melissa Kearney and a colleague, Wilson, I think is his name, at uh, the University of Maryland, the team of economists, they did a really interesting study. They looked at the regions of the country where fracking had suddenly created a whole bunch of very well-paying jobs, mostly for men, with limited education, right? These are low-skilled jobs, but high-paying jobs, like they average around 70 grand. And they studied the effect of these well-paid men in these regions on marriage rates, and they found no effect, okay? They did find that the girlfriends of these guys, who are now well-employed and well-compensated, were um, a little more likely to have babies with them but they did not find any increase in marriage. 
And that, I think, is a really, I mean, that's one study, but it does tend to bolster the notion that you can change the amount of money men make. You can jigger around with subsidies, or in this case, you don't need subsidies. It's the market itself delivering these higher incomes. And it won't affect the marriage rates if you don't go back to why marriage has declined in the first place, which is the social and cultural questions and even the spiritual problems that our society is grappling with. I think the problem with the fracking studies is that a lot of the boom associated with fracking, because it's tied to the natural resources, is, is you get effectively a gold rush. That is, you get large numbers of young men moving into these areas from elsewhere. And especially when you're talking about North Dakota, which is where so much of the boom has happened, you're creating, in a sense, very sort of unnatural and imbalanced communities. And so while I think that it's important to understand that just creating lots of good jobs somewhere doesn't automatically mean everybody gets married, I think the better sort of view on it is the work that David Otter has done looking at what has happened to areas of the country that were more or less impacted by the so-called China shock, by floods of cheap imports. What he finds there is actually two very interesting things. One is that places that were less affected by this and where men, therefore, still had better and higher paying jobs did have higher marriage rates. But the converse is also fascinating, which is that actually when women were doing relatively better economically, that tended to produce lower marriage rates, which in a sense goes back to your point, Mona, that this isn't just economic. There's a very serious cultural perspective. But both Otter's work and Andrew Churlin's work at Johns Hopkins points at least to the fact that where you have more kind of good middle skill jobs available for men, you tend to get higher rates of marriage. And so, again, this is just sort of one piece of the pie. I don't think that that's the entire argument for work, nor would work entirely solve it. But I do think if we want to tackle the crisis that we have in family, and, and if we want to get to a place where men and women are forming more stable households, and, and especially for the sake of raising kids, because a whole other dimension is that kids tend to have better outcomes in households and in communities where adults are working. If, right. if we want to do those things, then we actually need to have, we need to pay attention to the labor market and say, we actually need to make sure these jobs exist. We can't just take a view that says, as long as material living standards are rising, as long as we're happy as consumers, then we get to give ourselves a check mark. Yeah, no, I think your point about, you know, the average level of consumption is not the be-all and end-all of policy is a valuable one. But regarding work, I mean, right now we have the lowest unemployment rate, official unemployment rate that I can ever recall in my lifetime, and that included the roaring 90s and the go-go 80s. We have a tremendously low unemployment rate right now. Lots and lots of industries are offering good jobs and they're going begging. We also see that despite whatever obstacles there might be, immigrant workforce participation is much higher than that of the native-born. And then there's the other wrinkle. So if you look at, and I admit, when I raise these things, it's these are not things that are capable of being easily solved, and I concede that. But if you look at which men are more likely to be reached by the availability, say, of a new job or of job subsidies, such as you've suggested, they tend not to be the men who were raised by single mothers. Those guys are permanently, not all, obviously, some do fine, but 
the data are pretty clear that being raised by a single mother has a much higher toll on boys than girls. Girls also suffer in certain ways, like they have lower self-esteem and there are other things. They're less likely to assert themselves, which is interesting. But their labor force participation rates are much higher than their brothers, who were also raised in the same home but without a father. Their tendency to complete college is higher. Many of the indicia of success are better for women raised in a single home than men. And it might be that until we... I'm just posing this as a question. If you have a problem that's based on the fact that young men are growing up without role models, without discipline, and without ambition, partly because they were raised by single moms and didn't know their dads, why do you think that offering a wage subsidy would help them? By the way, one more thing. This country is rich enough right now that we already support there's something like 22% of men in between the ages of 18 and 54, the prime age of working men, who are disconnected from the workforce altogether, not looking for work, not unemployed. They're just not part of it. How are they getting by? And the answer is that this country is rich enough that, you know, through a combination of a little under the table work and some government subsidies and some living sponging off your girlfriend or your mother, you can get by. I guess my question to you is, isn't it about changing their sense of what it means to be a man? Well, I think your third point sort of addressed your first one. So I, I want to start back at the beginning with the question of sort of what is our economic situation right now? You're right that in cyclical terms, we're at the top of a boom. I mean, there's no question we have an incredibly tight labor market. But then as you just noted, I think you're exactly right. It's just upwards of 18% of prime age men aren't even in the workforce. Maybe it's that 18% don't have full-time work, whether they're looking or not. In secular terms, meaning looking over the long-term trend, what we are calling a boom right now looks worse than the bottom of any prior recession before the Great Recession. And furthermore, what we're calling a boom right now doesn't look as good as prior booms. So in you're right that the unemployment people, rate is lower. In terms lower. of people working. In terms of people working, in terms mm -hmm. of wage growth, 2018 is not as good as 2007, which was not as good as 2000, which was not as good as the late 80s. So the, the way that I try to describe what we have is, is as bumps on a downward slope. That, that it's almost like a kid sledding down a hill and going off of jumps. And each of our economic booms is a jump and we sort of celebrate and shout, we, and then we keep landing even farther down the hill. And on, you know, one of the problems is you, you hit each of those jumps and it's a pressure valve that releases a lot of the political pressure to do anything. Because like you say, hey, unemployment rates below 4%. Why are we complaining? But if you zoom out, we are since for decades now on this downward slope of declining wage growth and declining labor force participation for men in particular, that just keeps getting worse. Now, to your middle point about well, what's actually causing this and what can we do about this, I would say two things. One, I don't think that work or economic policy is the only explanation or that it's going to be a complete solution. But that should never be the threshold for talking about policy. The question is, are we doing things that make it worse and could we do things that make it better instead? And there I think the answer is obviously yes, that because of the obsession with consumer welfare, we really have pursued policy on so many dimensions that really actively just writes off these populations that says we don't care what happens 
to the labor market. We don't care whether they have work. And in fact, we will gladly trade that off if we can get higher short-run top-line growth and consumer welfare. So I think that's one thing to say is, no, it's not a complete solution, but, but we have to take a hard look at it. And then the second thing is that something like a wage subsidy, I think, is an important piece, this puzzle, and one response that can help address a part of the problem. But this is a conversation that has to happen across a, a whole bunch of different areas. So to take another example, and one that maybe comes close to this question of young men who are never even connecting to the workforce in the first place, we have an education system that says we're going to get as many people through college as possible. And if you don't make it, well, sorry. We spend you know more than $100 billion a year subsidizing college for these people who we think are essentially going to be the economic winners. And if you don't go to college, you get zero. And remind us, Oren, of the rates. I thought that was one of the most compelling parts of your book was those who go to four-year colleges, those who go to community colleges, and then a larger majority beyond that. You know, you can look at the education system in discrete points and feel good about it. Most people graduate high school. Most of them go to college. Most of the people who go to college finish college. Most of the people who finish college get a job that requires a degree. But if you look in the negative space of who you lose along the way, you end up losing about 80% who don't actually go successfully high school to college to career. And especially if you start talking about the folks who either don't even go on to college or the very large share who go to a community college and then don't complete, those are the kinds of groups for whom I think if we step back and said, you know, wait a minute, it's not just, hey, let's get folks through college if we can. And if not, you know, we'll have a safety net for them. How do we actually make high school not just a college prep academy, but an institution that connects people to work? We're not going to substitute for a father. That's not what I'm suggesting. But if we can get people experience in a job, even seeing what it means to work full time, you know, one thing I'm struck by when I talk to employers and, and you hear about the so-called skills gap, Sometimes the skills gap literally means we need people who can program robots. A lot of times what you find out skills gap actually means is we need someone who actually understands what it means to show up at 9 a.m. and work until 5 every day. And if your car's broken down, it means you need to figure out another way to get here by 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely, there's a broader cultural problem that our families and communities are not instilling that. But we can make a difference getting people connected to the workforce, into jobs, learning practical skills a lot sooner. And again, that we can, from a policy and resource perspective, we can take a lot more of our resources and focus them on connecting those people to jobs instead of subsidizing four-year degrees. So that's just another example. You know, organized labor, I think, is another area where that's an institution well, wait, before, of civil society. Before we get to organized yeah, labor, can, can, let me just respond to the education yeah. point. This is an area where I completely agree, and I, I think it's unjust, actually, that we pour so many resources into people who are the upper third, who are going to wind up, the college graduates, we're going to wind up with much higher incomes than others. And here we are subsidizing them at the expense of the lower two thirds who, who are not going to attend college. And it looks like all of our efforts notwithstanding, there's a cap on just how many people college is right for. I foresee some possible problems with tracking, because I think unlike Europe and some other countries, the United States is very uncomfortable with that concept. You know, we're the land of opportunity. We wouldn't like the idea that in eighth grade you take a test and then you're told, okay, fine, you go over here to the machine shop and you go to uh, university. 
So those are things we'd have to work out. I'm sure you've thought a lot about that problem. So if you would, respond to that and also the apprenticeship point that high schools could be putting kids into apprenticeships while they're in school. Yeah. Well, I think the tracking point is an important one. And and I think tracking can mean a lot of different things. I think you're right that take a test and put you here or there, regardless of American culture. It's just I don't I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think you want it to be the family's choice. And one nice advantage of making it the family's choice is you then put a lot more pressure on on the institutions to actually provide an attractive alternative track that, you know, the folks who have very little chance of completing college but go anyway, they're behaving rationally. You may as well try in a sense because what's the alternative? What we should be aiming for is a system that has different pathways so that if you're somebody who by the time you get to ninth or 10th grade, your family thinks, you know, and maybe you'll go to college someday, but when you're 18, college probably isn't going to be the best choice for you. There's actually something else that looks like a better choice. And we should be taking on as our obligation as a society to be constructing that better choice so that people want to choose it. And Um, what would that be? Well, and so that comes to the apprenticeship question, which is, you know, I think when we talk about apprenticeship as just sort of, it's a very popular talking point that people don't then don't dig into what it means. And among other things, it's important to recognize that even when we talk about vocational education in this country, it's not typically manufacturing and and auto repair. I mean, most vocational ed in this country is things like, you know, medical technician, business. There are so many different fields where going and living on a college campus is not the sensible thing to go do when you're 18. And so what an alternative track should really look like is to say, look, if when you're 14 or 15, you start an alternative track, first of all, we can structure high school differently because we know the goal here isn't four years of college prep to then go into more academics in college. So you would consolidate more of the kind of core critical academics earlier on. And then you would try to structure it so that when you're 16, 17, 18, you're spending some of your time in a classroom, whether that's at a high school or a community college or a technical training program of some sort, and some starting to work with an employer. And initially, that's probably unpaid. You might even need to pay the employer to take folks in some cases, but you're beginning to work in an office, on a job site, whatever kind of job you're pursuing. I mean, construction in the trades is another huge piece of this. And then by the time you get, so let's say when you're 17, you're spending half of your time in a classroom and half a time on the job. When you're 18 and 19, you're spending most of your time on the job. You know, you can get to age 20 with several years of job experience, earnings in the bank, an industry credential, a good job. And by the way, all of that, even if we had to subsidize it the whole way, still cost less than trying to send you to college. And you've got more money left that we could then put toward some sort of savings account. Just keep in mind that we're going to need to reinvest in training later on in life. So I think it's less about saying everyone's going to become an apprentice when they're 17 and more about saying, like you said, maybe for a third, maybe for a half, some form of college is the sensible step when you're 18. But for another at least half of the population, getting preparation and moving into the workforce is a much more sensible next step with the recognition that maybe you go to college when you're 28. You know, when you have a more dynamic system, one of the nice things, one of the real virtuous cycles you get 
is that it becomes normal. Then colleges have to expect that there are going to be people who want to go to college when they're 28. And then businesses get used to having really wonderful, talented people moving up through the company who came up through a different track. And as you do that, you start to put college where it belongs. There are some people for whom spending those years when they're 18 to 22 on a college campus reading and taking classes, there are some people that makes a ton of sense for, and there are a lot that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we need to design things accordingly. Right. I agree with that. The matter then that we should turn to is immigration. It's sort of a mainstream view that if you import highly skilled immigrants, you increase the economic pie. And I know you don't like piety, but I think you're for this, right? You think that we should change the mix of immigration, not limit it, but we should aim it more toward the high skilled. Is that, am I saying that you're reporting your position? Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you think that can help the uh, the American worker? Yeah, I think there are two things I, I, I would say about immigration. One is You know, other things equal, I I think immigration is a good thing for the country for a lot of reasons. You wouldn't want to have 100 million immigrants in a year into a country of 300 million, but having a steady flow of newcomers from around the world into the country, I think, enriches it and us in all sorts of ways. And yes, economic growth is one of them, but I, I don't think necessarily the most important one. That being said, when we talk about immigration, we have to recognize we're talking about people and we're talking about something that's going to have an enormous effect, especially over time when you have more people coming in every year on the dynamic in the labor market. And so who it is that's immigrating and where in the labor market they're going to be competing is going to have a very large impact on labor market outcomes. And I think what you want in the labor market at the end of the day is balance. You want a labor market where the kinds of jobs that are available, that the kinds of workers who are in demand line up with the kinds of workers who you have. And if we have a situation where less skilled workers in particular are in relatively less demand or having a harder time in the labor market, then that's the part of the labor market that you don't want to be adding a lot of people to. Conversely, if you add a lot of new workers to the other end of the labor market, it actually accrues to the benefit of folks at the less skilled end of the labor market because relatively speaking, they become in higher demand. There are now fewer people with less skills who have more you know, physical skills potentially relative to those at the high end. And so relatively speaking, they should be able to command a premium. And so I think the two principles that we want to have for immigration are one, that we like immigration and want to have immigration to the country. And two, that we want who is immigrating to be reflective of where we need more or fewer people in the labor market. And so that means a real focus on high-skilled immigration and pretty strong restrictions on immigration of less skilled workers. But isn't that, you know, trying to manipulate the knobs of the economy in a way that for decades conservatives have been highly critical of, that, you know, you Orrin Cass is not going to have enough information to decide how many of this kind of immigrant we need and how many of that kind of immigrant we need. The market is going to be changing constantly. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, I think the first thing to be said is that this is an area where we have to make a decision. I mean, unless we're going to have open borders, we are going to set a restriction on immigration and we are going to have to choose criteria on which to admit people. So then the question becomes, well, which criteria should we use? We could just say it's just going to be a totally random lottery and that we have we have no ability to have any insight into what's going on within our economy and our society. 
but I, I don't think that's right. And I don't think that understands properly what the actual criticism of a planned economy is. I think if we tried to say, we're going to go out and look across the economy and figure out how many computer programmers we need next year and how many electrical engineers and how many construction workers and so on and so forth and go and find those people, then I think you're absolutely right, that we're not going to get that right. But at a much higher aggregate level where we're talking about things like college degree versus no college degree, and again, we're not going to get it exactly right, but I think we can look in the aggregate and say, you know what, the part of our labor market that has real problems right now is the part for folks without college degrees. So when we're choosing which types of immigration flows to facilitate, it's not the ones without college degrees. That's not the part of the labor market that we want to be focusing on. I don't see any reason to doubt that policymakers can make those kinds of choices thoughtfully, again, because they're choices that that we have to make one way or the other. Fair enough. You know, I might ask, Oren, Mona raised some work by Nick Eberstadt and others about men without work who are disconnected from the labor market. And I want to ask a question about sort of faith-based organizations that, that enter into some of this territory a little bit. We had a recent Faith Angle speaker at the border, Sister, Sister Norma, who talked about immigration from her vantage point, her work in, in New Mexico. You know, you have a faith-based actor who is getting involved and sort of at that margin. And I, I wonder if you might – you didn't comment on this in the book as much, but I wonder if you might comment a little bit on, on sort of what you see as being a potential role for community-based, civil society-based, faith-based, many other kinds of organizations doing work with those either men without work or guys coming back from prison. We've got 2.2 million people in prison, 650,000 coming back every year. You know, as you think about it as an economist, I know you worked at Bain and you worked with Mitt Romney on his work, you know, labor market sort of is your domain of expertise. What role, if any, do you see for organizations like that to be involved in job training and support? I think it's a great question. And it connects actually back to something important that Mona had raised earlier about the flip side of this question isn't just why aren't there better jobs for people, but also kind of what are people doing instead? And how have we constructed this safety net that really enables people in a lot of instances to to not work? And that more broadly kind of devalues the role of whether it's a man or a woman, somebody as a breadwinner who's working because that's what you have to do to provide for your family. And so I think when we talk about the flip side is how, of how do we get people working and how do we get jobs paying well is, well, how do we help people who aren't working and how do we hopefully connect those people to work? And one of the huge problems with the way that we operate our safety net, because we've entirely federalized it, is that it all has to come through these sort of defined rules-based programs that don't allow for any real judgment or or more intensive support at the local level and, and especially can't flow through, in a lot of cases, faith-based organizations. In the book, I actually talk a bunch about Catholic Charities of Fort Worth, which I think is a, a wonderful example of what it looks like if the safety net's actually working well, which is that they work with each family individually on what is that family's obstacle to moving towards self-sufficiency and develop a plan for how do you get there and how can we essentially create incentives, you know, both pushes and pulls to help you get there and hold you accountable for getting there. And, you know, a great example that they gave is is of a family that was trying to get the mom, the second earner, in, into a job to earn more money for the family. But they basically had a chicken and the egg problem of they couldn't afford good enough childcare to get started in a sense. 
And so they pretty much agreed with her, look, we'll pay your first and third month of child care. And if you actually stay employed for six months, we'll reimburse you a couple more months and let's get you going that way. And you contrast that with the kind of public policy call for, well, let's just subsidize child care. And you, you realize how much better it is. If you just say, well, let's subsidize child care. Well, first of all, you have to provide it for everybody. Second of all, you have to provide it forever. And third of all, you then have to figure out how to phase it out as soon as you start earning more, which actually then discourages people from, from trying to move up. And so, you know, whether you're talking about faith-based or secular, but I think so often faith-based organizations are the ones that are both have the commitment to doing this and a track record of doing it well, that kind of local targeted limited support is exactly the model that we need both to actually help people and to help them in a way that doesn't devalue work as the primary means of supporting yourself and your family. And so I think that has to be part of the conversation and is a whole area of reform that has to come alongside creating a better labor market for people to move into. And by the way, the other place that this has been tremendously successful is in Utah, where the Mormon Church is heavily involved in the provision of social services. And because they have that commitment and because it's very personal, it's been very, very successful. Of course, the state of Utah in general has incredibly low rates of welfare dependence and other problems because they have such strong families and because of the tradition of Mormonism there. The question I wonder if you have any view about is it's my judgment that over the last number of decades, we have so devalued fatherhood in our society, both through government policies where we've made it possible for women to choose to have children without fathers through financial support and other kinds of supports, and through the culture, which has stressed women can do it all, women are great, go women, men, they're faulty, they're kind of toxic, they have all kinds of problems. And I suspect that reintroducing to our national conversation, although I hate that phrase, the importance of fathers and how much fathers affect the outcomes for their kids would do a lot for male self-esteem in this culture. The fact is, there aren't very many positive role models for men outside of football <laughs> where, you know, you can be told this is how you can be a great guy and a great man. And, and one of them is be a father for your kids. Barack Obama, to give him credit, did try to do this sometimes and talk about the importance of being a father to his girls and how this was his most important job and so forth. But would you agree with me that that needs to be part of an, a reform agenda is changing the way we talk about masculinity and fatherhood? Well, I think as you said in the example of President Obama, I think it's something that has been introduced into the national conversation. I think there are certainly currents pushing the other way. It's something that I think a lot of people are, are trying to talk about. What I struggle with is the question of how do you actually cause change to happen on that dimension? I mean, each of us individually can make a point of talking about it. I think ultimately what we need to do is connect it back to the broader picture of what we think a healthy society looks like and say, you know, especially when we're talking about fathers, the idea that the father actually plays a critical role there's actually some real tension there because the flip side is then you have to say, well, then you're going to be in trouble if there is no father around. And yet so many of our impulses as a society is to say, well, but if there is no father around, we need to alleviate that condition. And there's such an incredible tension. And this shows up in many areas of public policy. But I think this is the 
biggest one where if you want to create a sense of, on the one hand, obligation for the men as fathers and providers, and on the other hand of fulfillment that they have in fact accomplished something important and are playing an important role, then the flip side is that there have to be negative consequences when that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And yet we have such an aversion both culturally and economically to allowing any negative consequences to happen. True. And and there's something to be said for that because there are kids involved. I mean, what makes this yeah. especially hard yeah. is then when you're talking about the kid, it's not the kid's fault the father's not there. So you do want to alleviate the negative consequence. And yet then the father turns around and says, well, if you're going to do that, if I'm not there, then how important am I? And right. so it's such a challenging issue. And I think we have to come at it from the cultural side of being willing to talk about it. And we have to come at it from the economic side of both reforming the safety net in ways that do restore the sense of obligation and fulfillment and of talking about work in this way of saying, this is one of the reasons we really care about work. Fair enough. You know, there's so much that you say that I agree with, but I'm going to challenge you in this sense. So if you look at, as we mentioned earlier, who's doing well and who's not doing well in our society, you can look at it in terms of, well, college graduates are doing great, the upper third, and everything's fine with them, and the lower two-thirds are struggling. You can say, you know, people who have been impacted by immigration or globalization or trade, you know, that that's the problem. And I think that when your book comes along and says, we have a real problem, and congratulations, it's a great book, and you've gotten a lot of deserved attention. But you say, you know, we really have to sort of reprioritize work and, and maybe change our immigration policies and change our trade policies and change many, many other things that we do to make it easier for this group to get work. And I look at it and I say, well, it might be that or it might be that the upper third in our society is still behaving, as Charles Murray memorably put it, by the social mores of the 1950s. The upper third is getting, they are not having babies before they get married. They are completing their educations, then they form families, and then they have babies. And for the middle group, it's worse. And at the bows at the bottom, like only a high school degree, uh, families are the minority, you know, intact families are the minority. And I say that is the primary mover of so many of the issues that we're facing, not trade or immigration or the changing economy, because people who don't grow up with an intact family are not able to take advantage of the opportunities that are right there. I agree. And, and I might even call it in the book this, what I think is sort of one of those stunning facts I've ever seen about American society comes from something Richard Reeves at, at Brookings showed a few years ago, where he was looking at mobility across generations and showing how, you know, kids born into the bottom quintile have trouble moving into higher quintiles. But then he provides a slice showing kids who are born into two-parent families versus single-parent families. And kids who were raised in households in the bottom quintile of income, but in a stable two-parent family, had essentially perfectly even chances of landing in any quintile as an adult. Kids who were born into the bottom quintile in a single-parent family were 10 times more likely to stay in the bottom quintile than move to the top quintile. So I like how you put it that we can talk about this as a college grad versus non-college grad society, or we can talk about it as a two-parent family versus one-parent family society. And I think that's a critical lens to always keep sight of. And I would just say, you know, my goal with the book and with, with a lot of the work I do is, is not to minimize any of that. But to say, you know what, there is an economic component here as well. 
that we've neglected for too long and in fact have managed to make things worse for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And so let's keep that in the conversation. And, And as policymakers and especially as conservatives, let's not pretend we can ignore that. Let's take responsibility for that part of it as well and do what we can there but certainly not pretend that that's going to solve everything by any means. That's wonderful. I think it's yeah. a classic, you know, dynamic to hold together the cultural and the economic. And we have in this conversation an economic labor market expert who's done terrific work recently and a cultural voice who's done work from another angle maybe a little bit as well. I do recall the phrase, preach what you practice as wow. being a helpful mantra, particularly for sort of that upper third group. Exactly. Um, if you're going to hold together these these two tensions at the same time, it's nice to be able to talk about it too, maybe a place of growth. But whether there's work to do on the cultural front with advancing this message more broadly and modeling it, doing more apprenticeships and stepping into that father void, or whether there's work on the uh, policy front in some of the changes you recommend, I think we're very grateful for the conversation. Last word, you guys, Thank please. You. No, yeah. really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. And I actually, the preach what you practice thing just reminds me of one other thing, which, you know, I think as we look ahead, there's this kind of universal basic income debate. Mm -hmm. And this idea that some folks have that, well, if the economy is just going to leave a bunch of people behind, we're literally rich enough, we could just send them a check. And it just occurred to me for the first time, the argument I make against that ultimately is a preach what you practice argument that, wait a minute, you would never let your kid do that. You would never tell your kid do what you want with your life and here's a check every month. And so we sure as heck shouldn't offer that to, to everyone who's falling behind. So well, that's, actually, that's the, a really funny parallel. The, well, the super rich actually sometimes do just send their kids checks and look how well that turns out. <laughs> that's right. I, it's not that no one does it. It's just that we don't really have a high opinion of that as, as a model of parenting. So exactly. maybe we shouldn't make that the model for our society either. Agreed. <laughs> Thanks so much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Thanks for listening.